0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the successful counter-offensive underway by the Ukrainian military in the northeast around Kharkiv that has routed the Russian invaders and provoked unusually harsh criticism from nationalists and military bloggers inside of Russia, who the regime has so far tolerated. Joining us is Michael Weiss. News Director at New Lines Magazine, who has reported on international affairs for over 10 years with a focus on the Middle East and Russia. He has interviewed ISIS operatives and Russian spies, published and curated a series of still-classified KGB training manuals, reported from Rebel Hill Syria and war-torn Ukraine, broken major stories about financial corruption and exposed the Russian intelligence service's ongoing subversion efforts in the United States and Europe. He's the author of The Menace of Unreality, How Russia Weaponizes Information, Culture and Money, and the co-author of the New York Times bestseller, ISIS Inside the Army of Terror. We will discuss calls from municipal figures in St. Petersburg and Moscow for Putin to step down, and whether pressure from the nationalists on Putin might result in him seeking more desperate military measures as his so-called special operation appears poised to collapse. Then we'll look into friction between the Senate's Republican minority leader McConnell and the head of the National Republican Senatorial Committee, Senator Rick Scott, over the quality, in quotes, of Trump-chosen candidates and campaign dysfunction after $181 million was wasted on digital ads. Joining us is Julian Zelizer, a professor of history and public affairs at Princeton University, whose recent books include Fault Lines, Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker and the Rise of the New Republican Party, Myth America, Historians' Take on the Biggest Legends and Lies About Our Past, and The Presidency of Donald J. Trump, A First Historical Assessment. The co-host of the Politics and Polls podcast and a CNN political analyst will discuss his article at CNN, What It Will Take for the GOP to Abandon Trump. Then finally, we'll speak with Thomas Makaitis, a professor of history at DePaul University who has taught counterterrorism courses for the past 13 years at venues around the world as part of the United States Department of Defense Counterterrorism Fellowship Program. He's the author of six books, including New Terrorism Myths and Reality, Violent Extremists Understanding the Domestic and International Terrorist Threat, and Iraq and the Challenge of Counterinsurgency. We'll discuss his article at the Hill Biden Was Right. Maga ideology is fascism. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent, without corporate sponsors and advertising, relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org/donate, or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org, where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as five dollars a month help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org. Donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Michael Weiss, the news director at New Lines magazine, who has reported on international affairs for over 10 years, with a focus on the Middle East and Russia. He has interviewed ISIS operatives and Russian spies, published and curated a series of still-classified KGB training manuals, reported from rebel-held Syria and war-torn Ukraine, broken major stories about financial corruption, and exposed the Russian intelligence services ongoing subversion efforts in the United States and Europe. And he's the author of The Menace of Unreality, How Russia Weaponizes Information, Culture and Money, and is the co-author of the New York Times bestseller, ISIS, Inside the Army of Terror. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Weiss.
1: Thank you, Ian. Happy to be back.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And obviously, the Ukrainian counteroffensive recapturing Kharkiv and a lot of the area in the north there, right up to the Russian border, has really got certainly the mill bloggers in Russia in a bit of a lather. It seems that even on the mainstream television propaganda channels, state TV, they're at least sort of not crowing about ludicrous and unrealistic victories, but rather somberly mentioning that they have some reversals. And then you've got municipal figures in both Moscow and St. Petersburg calling for Putin's resignation. So what are we to make of all of this?
1: Well, I think it's a pretty calamitous setback for the Russian president and for the war aims at large. Um, His military, judging from reporting that's coming out now in the Washington Post, I mean, you mentioned Telegram and even pro-Russian military commentators who've been pretty unvarnished in their appraisal that this is a route uh, and there's no way to dress it up. The Ministry of Defense in Moscow is portraying it as a regrouping of forces to fortify Donetsk, but nobody believes that. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's extraordinary. Um, And I think the most extraordinary aspect of it is that nobody really saw this coming. For for many months, Ukraine has been telegraphing a big counteroffensive to retake the southern area or oblast of Kherson, son city was the first major population center to fall to the Russians in late February, early March. Strategically, uh, the southern areas tend to be more commercially viable for Ukraine and important. I mean, a lot of grain uh, is exported from these port cities. Um, and so, yeah, we, we were all looking south when Ukraine was quietly moving forces to the northeast. Uh, and it doesn't even seem like it was that many troops. I, I haven't been able to get it credible figures on this yet, but you know, the, the anecdotal evidence that's emerging is that you, know, you had as little as, as sort of a single company in some instances just pushing through, um, which suggests not heavy engagement, um, but rather that the Russians just turned tail and, and ran away. Um, I mean, there's a piece I just read in the Washington Post today suggesting that uh, in one village in Kharkiv, uh, you know, the soldiers stripped off their uniforms They held villagers at gunpoint saying give me your the keys to your car uh they dressed up as civilians and just hightailed it back over the border to avoid uh reconnaissance surveillance where they might then be bombed um they were terrified of what the ukrainians were doing and and this this didn't happen you know uh sir lawrence friedman the dean of british strategic studies had a very good piece on this, um, quoting Ernest Hemingway, you know, how do you go bankrupt gradually, and then all of a sudden, right? I mean, war works in a similar manner, in that the Ukrainians have been kind of conducting these shaping exercises all along the contact line, you know, ever since they received the high Mars, NATO standard, US provided artillery systems, they've really just been punishing Russian supply lines ammunition depots, fuel depots, command centers all along that line of contact and and in places where they simply could not have access before given the range of these systems. So I think that what what this ended up doing I mean it's all of a piece, right? You know, the the messaging that Kherson is the big juicy target forced the Russians to move some 30,000 troops from other points along the contact line down to the south, thus making their northeastern flank more vulnerable. The Ukrainians then just pressed in and it was like a hot knife through butter. I mean, some estimates are, and this is not confirmed, I think on the more conservative side, you're seeing 2,500 square kilometers have been retaken. That's an area that's larger than the combined areas of the cities of New York and Los Angeles. Um, But I've seen higher order estimates suggesting as many as 9,000 square kilometers have been recaptured. I mean, it's hard to gauge because, you know, what do you consider a, a recapture? If the Russians have withdrawn completely Uh, but the ukrainians have yet to occupy Uh, does that count or is it only the places where you can see the blue and gold standard being hoisted atop administrative buildings which is probably a smaller uh, piece of the pie but yeah i mean you know the russians themselves have acknowledged in their own rather cac-handed and duplicitous manner that they've been defeated Uh, putin according to the moscow times is holed up in his resort complex in sochi Um, he had a meeting of the security council on friday uh, essentially forcing his Siloviki strongmen advisors to all share in the culpability of this failure uh, to agree to a complete withdrawal from Kharkiv, again, under the pretext of fortifying Donetsk. But even areas in Donetsk are now in play. Uh, Denis Pushilin, who's the commander of uh, the so-called People's Republic of Donetsk, so the, you know, eight-year-old, nine-year-old occupied proxy army, um, he, he recorded a, a a video in a getaway car fleeing from um, we don't even know where he was, but essentially talking about Lyman um, being in a, quote, difficult spot. So, yeah, I mean, I think the Ukrainians have brought the pain all all along that, that front line. Um, and they're very, very bullish now about what they're going to continue to do, which is also actually now have that Kherson counteroffensive materialize in a significant manner.
0: Well, apparently the Russians have been abandoning weapons and running, and, yeah. and also abandoning tanks. But Putin uh, did open up a, a big Ferris wheel in—I think it was on Saturday, was it on Sunday—in mm-hmm. uh, Moscow.
1: And then it got stuck. <laughs> oh,
0: yeah, really?
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. The... That's the symbolism. It, it it broke down on its opening day.
0: I see. Well, there you have it. So, if you want uh, even
1: more symbolism than that, I mean the best map i've seen of what ukraine has recaptured if you look at the sort of uh horseshoe or, or half crescent um in in the east of the country it now looks like a broken sickle so make well, of that
0: symbolic and a half and again, I'm speaking with Michael Weiss, the news director at New Lines magazine, who has reported on international affairs for over 10 years, with a focus on the Middle East and Russia. He's interviewed ISIS operatives and Russian spies, published and curated a series of still-classified KGB training manuals, reported from rebel-held Syria and war-torn Ukraine, broken major stories about financial corruption, and exposed the Russian intelligence service's ongoing subversion efforts in the united states and europe and is the author of the menace of unreality how russia weaponizes information culture and money and is the co-author of the new york times bestseller isis inside the army of terror so but putin has always portrayed himself as a winner and he's trying to gloss over this reversal shall we say do you think that, that there has has been a real change there in other words the you know, his reputation as a winner and being a kind of political Houdini has caught up with him, you know, not dissimilar, I guess, to Donald Trump.
1: I think, you know, I would phrase this or couch this a little bit differently. I think the West for a long time has allowed Putin to portray himself as a strategic mastermind, as, as a sort of, um, you know, almost a his own Rasputin-like figure in a way, uh, simply because... He hasn't really been challenged or contested in a meaningful manner. I mean, you know, when when he authorized this stealth invasion, annexation of Crimea, you know, Ukraine's army was not in not in a fit state. Its security services were completely penetrated by Russian intelligence operatives. And, you know, the outgoing president was essentially an agent of Moscow. Uh, And this caught the West deeply by surprise and really the only arrows in the quiver at, the, at that point were sanctions. And you also had an administration that was very uh, skittish about providing security assistance to Ukraine for fear of um, what this might do uh, in terms of escalation and how it might provoke the Russians. And yet what we've seen time and time again is all of the fears, all of the anxieties that are propounded about what happens if we poke the bear, turn out to be a little bit overblown. So, you know, I remember, I'm old enough to remember when giving uh, Javelin anti-tank missiles to Ukraine was going to start World War III. Well, now we're giving them HIMARS, we're giving them NASAM air defense systems, we're giving them Excalibur artillery, we're giving them essentially everything they've been asking for for 10 years, with the exception of F-16 fighter jets, but we'll eventually give them those too. I mean, that program is now in the offing for the long term. Um, And World War III has not arrived. Now, that's not to discount you know, well founded or or well grounded, I should say, claims that, you know, Putin could really lose his mind and decide to deploy tactical nukes and do you know, everybody has to worst case scenario it. But the data thus far, if we're looking at this empirically, suggests the more that Russia is contested, the more that it is its bluffs are called, the weaker and weaker it becomes. And, you know, I mean I don't I don't like overselling America's role in this because At the end of the day, the Ukrainians are the ones doing the fighting. This is their victory. But I think there's a lot that's happened in the last six months, seven months now, uh, in terms of American aid, security assistance, and frankly, just covert operations that we don't know about and we won't know about for a spell. And I think that is predicated on the president of the United States himself being an old cold warrior, himself being deeply wedded to the idea of Europe and free. And he's a, he's a fundamentally a transatlanticist in his foreign policy doctrine. And he basically decided enough was enough. And I, th- I think indeed, you know, this last week is a return on investment. I don't think the Ukrainians could have managed this or at least I, I don't think they could have managed the ability to do this without the security assistance coming from the West, the United States and the UK in particular.
0: But beyond security assistance, uh, isn't there intelligence and military assistance? Yeah. And how much does that backfire in the sense that the Russian narrative now on state TV is that? We're having these military reversals on this special military operation because we're fighting NATO and the Americans who are supplying weapons. And but they that, keep that, saying they're Americans
1: in yeah, the that's field. Yeah, reversally. And I mean, it, it, for years, they've been couching this conflict as not one between themselves and Ukraine, but themselves and America and NATO. I mean, go back and look at the, the the preliminaries to this invasion, which they denied was going to happen. It was always, oh, you know, the final showdown will be with NATO, Ukraine. It's it's a vassal. It's it's a satrapy. It doesn't it doesn't count. You know, people are awaiting their liberation. So what? I mean, it, it, you know, at the end of the day, it it doesn't matter. It's 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 for domestic consumption, and the extent to which Russians still believe their masters i don't know i feel sorry for them if they do uh, no doubt there's a good per- percentage of the population st- fed a steady diet of state television nothing else and they do you know they're, and they're rallying around the flag and they think that um you know the west is is simply lying about what's taking place however i'd, I'd have to wager at this point that there's a, a you know goodly number of people i mean again the people to putin's right the ultranationalists, um you know the duganists of, of russia who think that he's been kittenish and who think that he hasn't committed enough genocide and that he hasn't sent enough rockets raining down on civilian infrastructure in Kyiv. The former commander of the LDNR, uh, Igor Strelkov, or Gyrkin, who's a former, not former really, I mean, there's no such thing, but whatever, used to be an FSB officer. He's been one of the um, principal Cassandras on Russian social media, saying essentially that this war is already lost and Ukraine has won it. Uh, because Russia doesn't have the gumption to do what's necessary. Mass mobilization. There was a a whole set piece on state television yesterday in which one poor sap was up there speaking sensible truths about this, saying, we're going to lose. The Ukrainians will be victorious unless we mobilize and declare all-out war. And he was being shouted down as a a, a non-comrade who ought to watch his mouth. Don't, you know, don't, don't, how dare you question the czar and his wisdom. So, yeah, I think this is going to lead to cracks in the regime. Um, I spoke to an Estonian um, analyst who's been very on song throughout this whole campaign who said that, you know, already one begins to see, judging by the rules of, of dictatorial governance, that a process of disintegration is happening. I mean, I mentioned earlier the Security Council meeting on Friday. That's a way for, you know the boss to make everyone complicit in his failure, such that no one can claim they were the outlier, speaking truth to power and, and so on. And also, you know, frankly, this is a regime that it really is at, at the upper echelons staffed with jumped up non-entities and mediocrities, with the exception of Nikolai Patrushev, who's more hawkish than Putin, former FSB director of, I think, six years. Um, and, you know, I think he is the chairman of the security council. Um, and, you know, he's probably, if I judge him correctly, probably somebody who's been advocating to go, go in more robustly, but he's not getting his way so far. So, you know, look, there've been rumors from the very beginning, you know, a slow motion coup is in the offing. I mean, I've even reported on rumors about Putin's seemingly poor health. Um, but at the end, of the day, I mean, I, it's really impossible to do Kremlinology because this is such a tight knit group of people that not a lot of information leaks out uh, that's credible. So we don't know. But we don't really have to know because the current strategy of security assistance, escalation in security assistance, and giving the Ukrainians the tools they need is working. You know, the metaphysical aspects of this war have always been on Ukraine's side. For them, it's existential, they are the defenders of their homeland. And I mean, it's not even consensus; it's unanimity. Ninety-eight percent want to keep pressing the fight, and and the optimism is is boundless there. So, but just
0: in the last few minutes, uh, Michael, if uh, Petrov is the most powerful figure outside of Putin, and and could possibly succeed him, and you've got him and the mill bloggers all furious, and and this floating the same canard that was floated here in the united states during the vietnam war that we're fighting the war with one hand tied behind our back Mm -hmm. so what happens then is it likely that putin will be forced to exceed and hadirov by the way the chechen leader is also saying similar things that we just you know we've got to take the gloves off does that mean that putin's eventually going to have to listen to them and take the gloves off and declare a full war and mobilize and escalate
1: no, not necessarily. Yeah, you know, I was having a conversation with um, with a friend the other day about the the old concept of mirror imaging from the Cold War, whereby American analysts and and strategic planners asked themselves uh, with respect to what Russia might do. Well, what would we do under the same or similar circumstances? And invariably, the answer they came up with was wrong, because it doesn't really work that way. Uh, the, the Russian government, the Russian culture operates under different sets of rules and playbooks. And for Putin, I mean, one thing that, that I've noticed about his regime for 20 odd years now is he can essentially push a button and reinvent reality overnight. I mean, you know, he presented himself as the loyalist to the Yeltsin era, um, the dutiful soldier. He was the force for stability. He was the quote pragmatist. He was the guy who, who rehabilitated the economy and slowly brought Russia out from you know, this, this morass of dysfunction and 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 bankruptcy. Then he became the hawk who was pushing back against NATO expansion and saw the dark hand of the State Department and the CIA behind every so-called color revolution. And now he's, you know, the great Russian chauvinist, the, the you know, neo-imperialist who wants to recreate at least chunks of the former Soviet or even before that Russian empire. Um, he can he can change his stripes yet again. I mean, Timothy Snyder had a very good essay a few months ago about the sort of virtual reality dictatorship that he has. So, I mean, I said just a few moments ago, if most Russians still think, you know, the war is going okay, or that, you know, the reason we lost Kharkiv is because of some grand conspiracy, not because of the failure and incompetency and demoralization of our own forces, um, then Putin could easily pull out of Ukraine tomorrow and couch that as a similar, you know, conspiracy that, uh, the Russians have to regroup or, you know, take inventory and, and fortify the motherland because now it's, 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 you know, all comers against Moscow. And I mean, he, he can come up with any him sheet he likes and his people, he will sell it to them. Now the ultranationalists and the people who think, as I said, that he's been too soft, they're gonna bleed and they're gonna moan. Uh, are they capable at the moment of fomenting a coup or taking over the regime? Or do I mean, I I don't see any indication that they are, um, you know, uh, who Patrushev is, do I see Patrushev as somebody who might behead the king and usurp the throne? Not really, I mean, he's been very loyal um, to Putin for a long time, if anything, I could see Putin deciding, well, maybe Patrushev is a problem here because he, he you know, In the grand Stalinist kind of mindset of paranoia, you don't just go after your enemies, but you go after your friends as well, because they might become your enemies. So I think there are a lot of variables here, Um, and that's not to say I'm not making any predictions. I'm just saying that, you know, the idea that that okay, because Ukraine succeeds. That's when we have to be at the most fearful and worried about what's going to happen in Moscow. I I think that's a bit of a canard. I've been hearing that for a long time. And and to my mind, it's it's only just rationalized not allowing Ukraine to succeed. Well, they've succeeded. And again, the Russians deny defeat. It'd be one thing if they were coming out and saying this was a route we failed. We need to now we need to really go to war. But they're not saying that. (laughs) Huh. Yeah. And until- but,
0: but Russian history, though, just in, in the last minute here, Michael, Russian history indicates that in 1905, when they lost the war against Japan, there were repercussions in a, in a revolution. And then later on, of course, during World War I, the failures on the front were such that it helped bring about the Bolshevik re- Revolution. So history indicates that defeats, military defeats are not good for the incumbent government.
1: They're not good for the incumbent government, but, I mean, there's no predetermined course by which the transformation in in Moscow has to take place. I mean, the Bolsheviks, they could not come to power democratically. They didn't have the constituency, so they seized power. doesn't mean that there's going to be another seizure of power necessarily. There, I mean, I don't know. I, there, there are some analysts and, and people who study Russia and who've been doing so a lot longer than I have who are perhaps counterintuitively or strangely optimistic about the future of Russia. They see that there's going to be some dawn of liberalism. I'm a bit skeptical of that myself. Um, But again, you know, in in a way, Ian, I mean, you know, I think part of the problem that we've all had is trying to view Ukraine through the prism of what will Russia do? In other words, Ukraine always, always portrayed or always, Held in this conceptual framework as the perennial victim and the force that is acted upon, and I, I think we're, we're sitting here, we're even having this conversation now, having talked about you know the, the recapture of 2,500 square kilometers by the Ukrainian armed forces against what was heralded as the world's second greatest military power, and we're still treating Ukraine as though it is acted upon when it is the the, the actor in in, in the, the current circumstances. So I mean, what happens in Russia? Uh, you know, if, if some lunatic ultra takes over, then yeah, I mean, we have to be fearful that somebody like that might launch WMD or engage in some kind of unconventional warfare and perhaps not just against Ukraine, but European targets. But then we're having a totally different conversation because then, you know, article five, NATO collective security comes into play. But with respect to Ukraine, um, you know, and I think I've mentioned this on your show before Lloyd Austin, the defense secretary several months ago said the U S objective is to ensure that Russia cannot wage this kind of uh, aggressive warfare against a neighbor in the, I think you said the, the, the short to mid term future. That seems to me a very sensible and, and morally correct strategic policy for the U S to have as of now, I don't think Russia has got the manpower or the resources or the technological capability, thanks to sanctions, to prosecute a war successfully in Ukraine. So where is where is, you know, this sort of post Putin Russia 2.0 going to get its new military? Remember, for years, the 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 propaganda was that uh, Sergei Shoigu was building Putin this bright, shiny new army that was going to mop the floor with everybody. Well, we see the result of that. And we should, I think, be mindful of the fact that, you know, what is printed on Potemkin paper or what gets circulated in Rezoboran export brochures is not the reality. Uh, The Russian soldiers still could not fight the way that we were told they were going to. Um, And look, Ukraine now is in a much stronger position than it was on February 23rd. You know, they don't have to join NATO and they're not even talking about it anymore because they are getting a NATO standardized military. And I don't just mean kit. I mean, TTPs, you know, the way that they're fighting or they have been fighting in Kharkiv uh, is very indicative. I had this conversation with a retired U.S. Army colonel yesterday, very indicative of U.S. strategic doctrine cooked up in the 1970s and the 80s, which is you don't hit the first line of defense. You hit several lines in. You take out the rear. Uh, and then you essentially, you, you trap the guys on the, the line of contact because, you know, the, the Russians are not good at, and they've not been good at logistics and supplying the people that they've got on the front line. That that's because supported. of corruption, right? Well, corruption and also their doctrine is fundamentally different from ours. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I mean, now I'm hearing, oh, we're worried that the Ukrainians have pushed too far in advance, that they're going to have issues with supply lines and the rest of it. But that's not, I don't think that's necessarily true. I mean, the the Russians had relied uh, heavily on rail lines because they simply couldn't move things, um, by, you know, vehicle convoys that ran out of fuel, there were problems with maintenance, you know, the, the, the tires were busted, your corruption argument, yeah. But the Ukrainians have seemed to be quite adroit at, at getting stuff to where it needs to go. And now they have, I mean, indeed, in capturing Izium, which is a main uh, railway hub that the Russians had relied on heavily as a kind of operational logistical command center in uh, in the region. And now that, that, that's in Kiev's hands again, so. You know, I I look, I, the, the one constant for me in the last seven months, even before that is, you know, and and I, I, I fall prey to this instinct too. So I'm a little more self-conscious of it and also conscious of it in others. But I think underestimating Ukraine's capacity and not listening to them when they say they can achieve certain things. I mean, it's, it's been a kind of Orientalism I think that the West is, 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 you know, hard pressed to slough off at long last, but time and time again you know underestimating them has proven to be folly and uh, you know do I think they can recapture her son I do I do um, I think even frankly Crimea is is possibly in play at this stage so you know I mean again I'm not I'm not predicting things I'm just saying based on what we what based on the evidence of what they they have achieved what they can achieve seems a lot greater than what we previously assumed.
0: Well, Michael Weiss, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Sure. And again, I've been speaking with Michael Weiss, who's the news director at New Lines Magazine, who has reported on international affairs for over 10 years with a focus on the Middle East and Russia. He has interviewed ISIS operatives and Russian spies, published and curated a series of still classified KGB training manuals, reported on rebel hell Syria and war-torn Ukraine, broken major stories about financial corruption and exposed Russian intelligence services' ongoing subversion efforts in the United States and Europe. And he's the author of The Menace of Unreality How Russia Weaponizes Information, Culture, and Money. And the co author of the New York Times bestseller ISIS Inside the Army of Terror. We're going to take a brief station break and be back looking into the friction between Senate Minority Leader McConnell and Senator Rick Scott and what it will take for the GOP to abandon Trump.
2: (Sessizlik) i my not
3: i a
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Julian Zelizer, a professor of history and public affairs at Princeton University, whose recent books include Fault Lines, co-authored with Kevin Cruz, Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of of a Speaker, and The Rise of the New Republican Party, Myth America, Historians Take on the Biggest Legends and Lies About Our Past, and The Presidency of Donald J. Trump a first historical assessment. He's the co-host of the Politics and Polls podcast and a CNN political analyst, where his latest article at CNN is Opinion, What It Will Take for the GOP to Abandon Trump. Welcome to Background Briefing, Julian
2: Zelizer. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And there's a feud, apparently, according to your article, between uh, uh, Florida Senator Rick Scott, who heads the National Republican Senatorial Committee, and Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, who uh, recently questioned the quality of some of the candidates that are running, and that infuriated Rick Scott and suggested somehow that McConnell was committing treason uh, to the Republican cause. On top of that, it seems like Rick Scott has squandered $181 million on digital advertising. So um, what's going on here in in this intramural battle? between the Republican senators?
2: Well, I think Senator McConnell is upset. Uh, He is someone who is expecting to regain control of the Senate in the midterms a few months ago. That was all the talk in Washington. And there was evidence to suggest that, uh, you know, the combination of historical losses for first-term presidents in midterms, combined with the difficulties President Biden was facing made those prospects very good. But the situation has changed. And part of the story uh, are candidates who Republicans have picked, who are proving to be um, less than skillful and putting seats up in jeopardy that it looked like they could have won a few months earlier, and then uh, Scott and some of his spending and decisions. So uh, the feud is about McConnell getting angry, about uh, not regaining power. And Scott being defensive about the choices he's made.
0: Well, it was uh, Trump's choices largely that are being questioned, right, by McConnell.
2: That's exactly men- right. And I think when we're talking about Scott's decisions, I think, and you know, besides the spending, uh, the main concern or the main argument of critics within the Republican Party is allowing Trump to have such a heavy hand in. Uh, picking people like Herschel Walker, former football player in Georgia, or uh, Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania.
0: Well, hadn't they noticed that he'd already picked Tommy Toberville earlier? I mean, obviously, Trump has no concern for the quality of candidates. It's their celebrity that seems to drive his decisions.
2: It's a fair, uh, fair point. I mean, context matters. And I think Now, uh, the former president is not as much of a figure, uh, at least for the time being. He is facing his own uh, legal challenges uh, as a result of the investigation. And so I think there might be a sense that his clout is not quite as strong. And so then the costs incurred by these kinds of choices are becoming more problematic, you know. Uh, he's a transaction politician, Senator McConnell, and, and he's looking at the lay of the land and looking what is the cost of those kinds of picks today uh, versus what were they when Trump was in office.
0: Well, aren't they also having a problem, the Republicans, not just in the Senate, but in the House as well, raising funds because Trump is soaking up so much money. And now that he's in more legal trouble, he's asking for more money.
2: That's exactly right, uh, and and the president, the the former president, the benefit he brought the Republicans in terms of fundraising is now hurting them. Uh, you know, some of this is ironically the problem you hear in terms of the separation that often exists between the president and his party, meaning the president is focused on fundraising for re-election, and in midterms, parties struggle to command that. Here we have the former president really... Uh, trying to get as much in funding as possible, uh, both for his legal problems, for running again, uh, and that is taking money away from Republicans. And Democrats are finding more success than they thought, in part because of Supreme Court decisions uh, and in part because of energy that's coming from the nature of the Republican Party, as much as because of enthusiasm from President Biden.
0: And again, I'm speaking with Julian Zelizer, a professor of history and public affairs at Princeton University, whose recent books include Fault Lines, co-authored with Kevin Cruz, Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich and the Fall of a Speaker and the Rise of a New Republican Party, Myth America, Historians Take on the Biggest Legends and Lies About Our Past, and The Presidency of Donald J. Trump a first historical assessment. He's the co-host of the Politics and Polls podcast and a CNN political analyst. And his latest article at CNN is What It Will Take for the GOP to Abandon Trump. Well, it is extraordinary that McConnell had this open feud with Peter Thiel, the, the Silicon Valley billionaire who's literally buying or trying to buy two Senate seats, one in Arizona and one in Ohio, And neither of his candidates are doing that well. In fact, J.D. Vance has gone radio silent, has he not? And recently McConnell basically said Teal wanted the Republicans to spend more money on these campaigns. And McConnell said, well, why don't you spend money? You're the guy that put them there in the first place. So how's that feud working out?
2: Well, uh, not well, and obviously if the feud wasn't happening or the feud was somehow overcome, the Republicans would be in better shape. I mean, these kinds of feuds come to the surface when a party is struggling, and a party struggling going into these midterms, the opposition party is never going to be happy because uh, this should be the moment where things are looking pretty good. And Senator McConnell will be as tough with a Peter Thiel or a Republican like Scott if they are not delivering what he wants. He is about partisan power, which is what I try to focus on in that article. Uh, And once Republicans run up against that or hurt that objective, he is fine turning against them. And now he's just turning against them in public, I think feeling a bit desperate about the direction of his party.
0: Well, isn't there a personal stake in this, Julian Zelizer? He wants to be majority leader again, doesn't he?
2: Oh, absolutely. Uh, You know, partisan power and his power go hand in hand. I think he wants to have that base. And uh, now it's really a question of whether the next two years he might still be running the minority again.
0: So uh, Senator Rick Scott has always amazed me that he has gotten as far as he has, both being a uh, governor of Florida and now a senator, um, he had to settle, I think it's the biggest fine ever paid in American history, $1.7 billion he had to pay to the government for Medicare fraud when he ran a big company, that a so-called healthcare company that was involved in massive Medicare fraud. He uh, recently uh, suggested that the Republicans should do away with Social Security and also with Medicare, so I'm astounded that this man has gotten as far as he has. What, what is his appeal, do you know? I mean, here's a man who stole $1.7 billion from the American taxpayer, and he's turning around saying, oh, you don't need Social Security and Medicare. You'd think he'd get run out of town.
2: Yeah, you would. Uh, and, and we could probably have that discussion about other figures in the GOP, including the former president himself, where the same kinds of questions are asked. Uh, both from pretty radical positions he's taken to uh, corruption and and scandal. And I think, um, I don't know the exact appeal, but at some level for other elected officials, the appeal only is um, the notion, at least until now, that somehow he could still deliver the goods. He could deliver the money. He could deliver the seats. uh, And now that's not clear anymore. And so I think that's why he's coming under fire. Uh, Again, there's a, a, you know, transactional nature about, I think, how many Republicans look at each leader. Uh, And if the calculation is they can deliver power, I think a lot of Republicans are willing to look the other way, uh, at inconsistencies, at positions like the ones you said, or controversy and scandal.
0: So what's going on with their strategy, though, with Scott? And and also this... uh C- character Mastriano running for governor of uh, Pennsylvania. Are they taking their cue from Marcos's son's victory in the Philippines, where he didn't run a campaign, he didn't uh, talk to the press, he didn't get interviewed by anybody, he just took to Facebook and social media with digital advertising, which is what Scott squandered uh, $181 million on and seemed to get no traction?
2: I think a lot of Republicans are um, still somewhat impressed and enamored by the way President, former President Trump communicated uh, through new media, through social media, uh, or alternative media, and just went directly to voters. I think they're underestimating uh, the idea that, or the reality that other forms of media are still very important. You can't totally isolate yourself from television, newspapers, radio, podcasts that are not just for like-minded voters or are not just social media kind of platforms where you say what you want. And uh, they are not Donald Trump. And so I think they are struggling. And um, I think there's a cost to that kind of strategy and a pure investment in that as opposed to other forms of communication uh, don't seem necessarily to be the way to go from what we're seeing.
0: So with Trump himself, though uh, we mentioned earlier how he's soaking up a lot of the money that Republican senators and congressmen would need to get reelected and even now there's there's a lot of talk that the Democrats could pick up several seats in the Senate and possibly hold the house. Do you think it's possible that Trump is going to do something that's really going to screw things up and that is announce that he's running for president? It's obvious that the DOJ won't indict him until after the election, uh, if indeed uh, an indictment is to happen, and that's the rumours that I'm hearing it from the DOJ. So, what's your sense of where where this is heading? Will something happen before, in terms of uh, in November? I'm sure the, every Republican is telling Trump to you know not to muddy the waters and screw things up for them anymore, but he doesn't really listen, does he?
2: No, he doesn't. I mean, I don't, I think while Trump depended on Republicans and depends on Republicans, it still is only path to regaining power. Uh, He doesn't care about them. And so uh, I don't think he's going to listen to them as he makes his strategy. I think there'll be a part of him, from what we know, uh, who will watch Republicans struggle and almost have a greater uh, sense of urgency in terms of needing to declare himself a candidate. uh, And um, kind of washes hands of what's going on with the midterms and reshift the news conversation to him. Um, but there could be high costs to that, and I think that might not work out the way he wants, especially if the connection is made between him becoming more present and Republicans uh, struggling. And there's no way to control him. This is what Republicans signed up for. Uh, They derived benefit during his presidency, from Supreme Court appointments to more, Uh, but now they have to pay the cost, and I I can't predict what is going to happen, and I don't think anyone can, which is the very nature of this former president, and he is not someone who is loyal to anyone other than himself uh, or those who will help him in the short term, and I'm not sure he sees Senate Republicans as being part of that anymore.
0: But just in closing, he's obviously in serious trouble over these missing, uh, highly classified documents, 42 empty folders, what happened to the contents, why did he take all this top-secret stuff. He's temporarily gotten lucky with a judge he appointed who froze the investigation, but the DOJ's trying to sort of shame her into doing the right thing, whether she's so ideological that she can't do the right thing, who's to know? But it could then move the appeal to the 11th Circuit, even though that's stacked with Trump-appointed judges. The long the short it is, you at least got a few Republican senators like Lindsey Graham and Mike Rounds and others complaining that Trump's promise to pardon the insurrectionists is a bad idea. I mean, what does it take? I mean, I'm astounded that none of these... Republican senators, and after all, this is the party of law and order, and they were the the stewards of national security. Why are they being so silent on the outrageous mishandling of classified documents by Trump?
2: Well, look, I think part of uh, that cabal of Republicans still believes um, that Trump holds a lot of sway in their electorate, and so I think they are scared Um, They're scared to do anything uh, that too directly challenges him. I think they are scared of him. I think they are very worried about sticking out their necks critically and having to face the fire and fury that will come from him uh, after they do that. And they are very worried about his announcement, not from the perspective of what it does to the midterms. Once he's back, and many assume he might very well win the nomination, um, then you don't want to be that senator, that Republican senator who went against him, um, because he will seek retribution. So I think all of those factors are keeping uh, Republicans in, in check. And and again, all everything you're saying is more reason that Trump might think of announcing sooner than later. I mean, in addition to wanting to be an active candidate, which will make DOJ prosecutions harder from Attorney General Garland's perspective, Once he announces, that fear factor goes up, and so he can uh, hold those senators in check. So I think that's what's going on, and it's a difficult dynamic and might very well give Democrats an opening that any other way they wouldn't have in the midterms in November.
0: Well, Julian Zelizer, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Julian Zelizer, who's a professor of history and public affairs at Princeton University, whose recent books include Fault Lines, co-authored with Kevin Cruz, Burning Down the House, New Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker, and The Rise of the New Republican Party, Myth America, Historians Take on the Biggest Legends and Lies About Our Past, and The Presidency of Donald J. Trump, A First Historical Assessment. And he's also the co-host of the Politics and Polls podcast and a CNN political analyst where his latest article at CNN is what it will take for the GOP to abandon Trump. We're going to take a brief station break. We'll be back speaking with a counterterrorism specialist who has been writing about extremism and teaching courses on Germany under the Third Reich about his new article at the Hill, Biden Was Right, MAGA Ideology Is Fascism.
4: After all, he's just a man Stand by your man. Give him two arms to cling to And something warm to come to When nights are cold and long
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Thomas Mekaitis, who's a professor of history at DePaul University, who has taught counterterrorism courses for the past 13 years at venues around the world as part of the United States Department of Defense Counterterrorism Fellowship Program. He's the author of six books, including New Terrorism, Myths and Reality, Violent Extremists, Understanding the Domestic and International Terrorist Threat, and Iraq and the Challenge of Counterinsurgency. And he has an article at The Hill, Biden was right, MAGA ideology is fascism. Welcome to Background Briefing, Thomas Mikaitis. Thank you. So Tom, you've spent many, many years writing about extremism and teaching courses on Germany under the Third Reich, and obviously the word fascism is, as a majority is thrown around uh, often fairly loosely, but more and more it seems to be becoming an acceptable description of Trump and his uh, MAGA movement.
3: Yeah, I would agree with that. And I want to be really clear from the outset. Um, Like the president, I am not branding all Republicans and not even all those who supported um, Trump as fascists. What I'm saying is the ideology very clearly fits the definition of, uh, you know, of fascism uh, as it was constructed in the first uh, couple of decades, well, first four decades of the 21st century. It's just really hard uh, to not see a, what is a fairly glaring similarities.
0: Well, as you write, violence is a stock in trade of fascists, and certainly former President Trump has a lot of support from the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, and the Proud Boys. And of course, the Three Percenters mm. take that name, the Three Percent, from the uh, notion that only Three Percent of the American people supported the American Revolution against the British. So they're basically saying that, you know, it only takes a handful of revolutionaries to change the country. There's lots of talk from those far right groups of Civil War, even the Senator. Lindsey Graham recently warned that if Trump is indicted, uh, there could be riots in the street. So from the point of view of those holding the line against fascism, what do they do? What do the FBI and the DOJ do? They're trying to uphold the law. At the same time, they're being intimidated, and Trump is absolutely vilifying FBI agents. So the idea that they somehow should change their ways so that there isn't a civil war is an admission of failure, is it not? It's a, yeah, it's a and, and capitulation.
3: You know, first of all, the 3% com- claim is absolute nonsense. <laughs> In addition to being an historian, I'm a Revolutionary War reenactor, and uh, it was closer to 30% who supported it. It's still a minority, but, you know, these claims that they're the vanguard of, of this large movement is very problematic they're not only warning of civil war they're you know they're painting a target circle on the back of the very law enforcement that they constantly claim to be upholding when you 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 know you essentially are you know in a sense egging them on um you know vilifying them saying you know look at what they're doing and so on and it's translated into real threats and that is the kind of intimidation the Nazi bully boys did on the streets, the brown shirts, you know, in Germany in the, 19, or in the 1930s. Um, and it really should stop. Well, law enforcement is responding the way that it, that it has no choice but to. It's hardening its sights. It's warning its officials. It's, um, you know, preparing uh, to respond uh, to defend law and order in the United States as best it can.
0: But Trump himself has shown that he has a kind of, if not a love of violence, certainly a fascination. He he watched the storming of the Capitol, refused to do anything to stop it, and apparently enjoyed watching the the insurgents beat the hell out of the Capitol police. And, you know, when he was earlier in in his 2016 campaign, campaigning in Suffolk County, New York, he told the local police at a big gathering, you know, when you put a a suspect in the back of the car. You know, don't put your hand on his head. Let him bash his head against. And at rallies, he threatened the few demonstrators and hecklers. Uh, you know, take them out. I'll pay for the, I'll pay for the bills, etc. Yeah. Yeah. What's your sense of this guy? You know, he's only interested in himself, but at the same time, we're now learning. For example, that he refused to leave the White House. I mean, he didn't want to leave. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Well,
3: that's all of that is at the heart of the um, investigation being done by the January 6th Committee and the Department of Justice, and you know, they'll have to determine whether there's enough there to, you know, actually warrant an indictment. Um, but again, you know, what what fascist dictators claimed was that, you know, they were the embodiment of the people. They knew better than anybody else. You know, um, I understand the system, Trump said, I alone can fix it. It's very much similar to comments made by Benito Mussolini and uh, also by Adolf Hitler. Though I'm not saying there's a direct moral equivalency, there. But there are disturbing similarities that, you know, I'm the man on the white horse. And as a dear friend of mine used to say, the man on the white horse is always followed by a mob of men in brown shirts. Um, And unfortunately, that's that's become a really serious worry in the country. And even more so is the way in which the Republican Party has caved in um, uh, you know, to uh, his behavior and simply refuses to challenge him or even to you know, to stand up for, you know um, you know, for law and order um, in in many cases.
0: Well, it's obvious that Trump has sympathies, if not affections for totalitarian authoritarian leaders, mm-hmm. and in particular, for a murderous dictator, Vladimir Putin, And Kim Jong Un, I mean, and
3: also in uh, uh, Victor Orban. you know, who spoke at a conservative political action committee uh, recently, the president of Hungary, who has really curtailed civil liberties and open democracy in that country, Bolsonaro in uh, Brazil, um, Narendra Modi in India. Um, unfortunately, this, and, and for, you know, fairly right wing uh, movements in Europe and elsewhere. So, yes, there's, this is a, unfortunately, a worldwide phenomenon uh, that is a cause for great concern.
0: So Tom McIntyre, apparently, uh, certainly I've heard rumours that uh, Trump will be indicted after the elections. If that were to happen, and as I mentioned earlier, Senator Lindsey Graham warned that mobs would take to the streets, how close are we to him? And how real is this threat of civil war? Because we know that a lot of Trump's supporters have arms, and we know from polling that I think it's something like 40% 40% feel that violence is inevitable and necessary. So how would you rate the chances? Because, again, this man is he's cornered now because he's done the most outrageous thing with... Yeah. Um, God knows what he's done with these incredibly important national security secrets, some of them involving, or at least one of them, involving another country, which could be the state of Israel. So it's absolutely appalling what he's doing mm-hmm. with, you know, holding on to state secrets under the most absolutely reckless lack of uh, security. So assuming that he's pulled over, as he should be in the case of these uh, stealing government documents, what do you think is going to happen? Do you think there'll be large-scale eruptions in this country?
3: I don't really know because people said that after the raid on Marlago, the the well, the search of Marlaga it was perfectly legal and it was done appropriately and with you know reasonable evidence that they would find what they in fact found. You know, there were not there were isolated incidents and so on, but the threat level rose and the director of the FBI did inform you know field officers and agents that they had to be vigilant and uh, not take their safety for granted and so on. You could see demonstrations. uh, I don't know how widespread they would be. You know, to be fair, as with any movement, those who embrace the ideology, only a small percentage will actually endorse violence. And on, although you said, you know, a larger percentage said that they saw, saw violence as inevitable and necessary, it doesn't mean they'll do it. It's the small percentage, but that small percentage is very well armed and, and very well organized as well. And so I, I, I would not put a tax on officials and, and you know facilities out of order I do not expect to see you know millions of people taking to the streets and you know you know kind of expressing moral outrage if uh, he is to if he were to be indicted
0: but one of the things he's likely to do and a previous guest on today's program brought this up is that he's likely to uh, declare himself a candidate for president in order to get some protection. Um, yeah from the DOj so how will that complicate the mix
3: uh, well it'll make i don't know that it gives him protection it it certainly creates he's trying to create an appearance of political persecution um and and that it would help him perhaps in the in the in the public relations battle i don't but there's no legal status to being a candidate that protects you. Um, You know from indictment if in fact you are perceived to have committed a crime so it'll give him you know the bully pulpit and so on and it you know it creates a something of a dilemma in that you know candidates are usually given secret service protection and the question is at what point would that kick in I don't know. Um, but it's not going to stop things, um, but it's going to allow him to spin it the way he is. But on the other hand, it's not clear how well that's going to play. The um, yeah, results of the primary season are not entirely encouraging for Republicans. He's endorsed um, some far-right candidates who, yeah, they won their primary, but now they're, fought, they're behind in the general election, where a more moderate Republican might easily have won Um you know, and so the, we'll have to see how it how it plays out. But I, I don't think declaring his can I expect him to declare his candidacy. I don't think it's going to shield him from action by the Justice Department.
0: Well, Tom Acadas, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Happy to do it. And again, I've been speaking with Thomas Mekaitis, who's a professor of history at DePaul University, who has taught counterterrorism courses for the past 13 years at venues around the world as part of the U.S. Department of Defense's Counterterrorism Fellowship Program. He's the author of six books, including New Terrorism, Myths and Reality, Violent Extremists, Understanding the Domestic and International Terrorist Threat, and Iraq and the Challenge of Counterinsurgency. And he has an article at The Hill, Biden Was Right, And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends family and colleagues and I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org bye for now the guy that lived next door in
4: took the kids to the park and disappeared by half